Everybody, welcome to Decades of Cinema Podcast. This is Brian. And I'm Sean. And we have a special guest in the house, the legendary, the infamous Zach Pike. Hello. Hey Zach, thanks for joining us today. Welcome. So we're gonna strap yourselves in, okay? We're gonna take on a hundred years of cinema uh, over the next, I don't know, sixty to ninety minutes. And we've got a guest, as we said, Zach. Uh, Zach, for the viewers out there, uh, for who who are you? How do we know you? Um, give them a little background. I make uh, videos on YouTube, and uh, I'm here today because I was connected to Brian, who's connected to Sean here. I met Brian through, uh, a couple years ago, there was a feature on YouTube where you could find local videos shot near you. And one day I was bored, I clicked on it, and I found Brian's videos. And I was like, that's that's the school near me, that's the, the streets I know, I, I know this guy, or I, I know the place he's at. So one day I was at Walmart, and I walked <laughs> past the frozen food aisle, and I saw him. And uh, not to dog on you or either of us, your videos weren't super popular. They weren't on NBC every day. Right, yeah. But I had to say, I was a like, household is this, name, but yeah, is, is this going to be weird if I talk to this man with 100 views on his video right. and tell him I recognize him from YouTube? But I went up to him and we hit it off, and I'm yeah, sure that was pretty you know, cool, I guess. Surprisingly, that is not the first or last time that's happened to me, but I think that was the first time it's, it happened when my wife was nearby, and she thought it was the coolest thing. So I definitely got a point. She was like, wow, you know, that's, wow, that's you know, yeah, yeah. But, uh, it, no, it's funny. It and funny. Uh, a lot of times when I, I run into people, oh, hey, you know, I saw this video you did on such and such. Oh, cool. But we kind of just, you know, but, you know, I found out that you did videos. And so, yeah, we kind of had that in common, and you grew up in the same neighborhood. Um, Sean and I are, are I, I guess you would consider us cinephiles. We, you know, yep. different aspects of film that we're really into. Uh, before we kind of delve into today's 10 selections, what's kind of uh, your background in movies? Are you more of a casual fan? Go a couple times a year to the theater? Or what's, what's kind of like your interest level? Uh, it's funny you ask that because uh, it wasn't until like when I started doing YouTube stuff, I hated movies. I yeah, hated yeah. it. I couldn't wow. stay. Like, I, it was like Disney movies for when I was a kid, sure. but anything live That's what you grew action. Up with. Mm-hmm. When I went to middle school and like even high school, I was like, I don't really like movies. Yeah, and then like to... something happened and I saw Shawshank Redemption and I'd saw it on TV before them. But then that kind of like w- awoke something in me and I was like, I love films. And I was yeah. like, I want to check these out. So I started going through like IMDb's top stuff and sure, I like kind of the classics and I like mm-hmm. checking those out. But I also really enjoy like kind of the indie stuff or sure. weird things. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. John's oh, like like favorite. Anything that's weird because I think anyone can make a movie, but anybody that can just open it up and go weird with it is what I'm into. Anything yeah. that just like, yeah, like yeah. nobody else could do this except this person. Right, it's got it a has, stamp. It has yeah, some personality. Yeah. And that's what I'm kind of into is anything that just shocks me or um, is different, I guess. Cool. So. Great. Excellent. Um, before we jump into the first movie, too, I kind of want to uh, preface this. And we were talking about this uh, before we got on air. This episode is going to be a little bit different uh, than the first four that we've done. Uh, it's going to be a little bit more informal, a little bit more off the cuff. A, a couple reasons. I won't get into all of it, but one, we're outside, which is different. Usually we're in a studio. We're out in a park. It's about, uh, I want to say, 94. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty hot. A little, a little toasty. Yeah. Uh, a little hot. Um, sweating. First time we've had a guest. And also, too, 
typically when we go into these, it's a pretty, you know, Sean and I take copious notes and it's kind of a, a very streamlined process or we try to make it. This has been several months in the making and we've all watched these movies independently of each other. So some of us have seen these films quite recently. Others of us may have seen, you know, some of these selections two, maybe even three months ago. So, you know, we're all kind of, uh, but we're just going to make it, we're going to open it up, uh, try to make it more of a dialogue, a conversation, uh, and see how that goes. Did you but watch it, these in order? Like, no, I know, to, I ran I into you. Yeah, I, I, I ran into you about a month and a half, two months ago, uh, also out and about in public, and you had mentioned to me, yeah, you were kind of chronologically working through them. Yeah. And I sent Sean a message, like, dude, we need to get uh, to work. Because <laughs> uh, you told me, like, how's it going? I'm like, oh, pretty good. But I, I don't think it had started at that point. Yeah. But no, a lot of times, um, and this is the fifth episode, I, I don't think I've ever watched them in order. Not, uh, I've went out of my way to not do so. Me neither. Uh, we get these movies from different means, interlibrary loan services, Netflix. So sometimes it's just in the order that I receive it. Right. Well, are we ready to get into this then? Yeah, let's go 100 years back. All right. I'm going to start with Robert Veen's 1924 film, The Hands of Orlock. Now, Robert Veen might not be a name that really stands out for you, but if you've watched a lot of the more popular silent films from this era, you'll recognize him as the director of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which he directed in 1920. And that movie is always cited as one of the best examples of German expressionism in film. So when I saw this was on Netflix, uh, I figured we should probably check it out. And in the role of Paul Orlock, we have Conrad Veidt, who also played the, the creepy somnambulist in The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So here's a quick summary. A concert pianist has his hand amputated as a result of a railway accident. While he's under sedation, his wife begs the surgeon to save his hand somehow. And as these things go, the only hand available at that exact moment is the hand of a recently executed murderer. Orlock becomes paranoid and starts to think of himself as the murderer. He then gets caught up in a con man's scheme to extort money from him by blackmailing him for the murder of his own father. Will he snap out of his paranoid state and figure out who actually killed his father, or will he slowly descend into madness? So what do you guys think of this movie? Zach, you're the guest. Uh, you want to kick it off with initial yeah, thoughts? Yeah, sure. And so you saw these chronologically. I imagine it yes. was probably like around January that you saw them. <laughs> yeah, like around then I started, like I watched about a couple movies a month, maybe two a month mm-hmm. uh, for the most part. And this one, uh, it was basically a silent film. And they, and I think they, add, they had to add that like afterwards, all the creepiness and stuff was, I don't know. But uh, it was very unsettling. It was very just. I don't know if it is just that old era of films or silent era. I think so. There's, There's a something to be to said. You can't really replicate it. You could try to get the style, but right. it, there is a particular quality that you can't. You know, I think it's recreate. the crappiness of the cameras. I think too. Like there's, you can't see really far. There's almost a yeah, fogginess. The depth of the film of vision is different. That like really, really creeped me out. And the soundtrack they added was very unsettling. I just put some notes on here that for its time, there was parts where it was like blurring the film for like dreamlike moments and stuff that like that. That was neat. Yeah. That was awesome. Some yeah. kind of fade effects. Yeah, some superimposition I'm or something. I'm thinking 1924 they're doing right. this. Like that's crazy. And I don't know. It really makes you think like, how did you pull off that effect? You know, today with digital, it's real easy. It's a click. But yeah, some of those um, uh, practical effects. A lot cool. of the time, what, camera effects. what they were doing was um, they were covering the lens with like cheesecloth and things like wow. that to kind of filter that light and so that yeah. would like distort it and that's stuff. crazy yeah it's kind it of looked, interesting yeah it adds such a unique look and a creepy look and uh 
yeah, I enjoyed the twist too, which I don't think we're are we gonna go into that or I, I think uh, we we, we you know it it's it's been a hundred years. I think it's time yeah. to spoil it. <laughs> yeah, we can spoil it. <laughs> You've had enough time. <laughs> or lock. People yeah. have died since then. Since yeah, the, the cast is gone. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the twist of it being a innocent man's hands. I think it was Vasor I put here is that guy's name. Yeah, it being his hand. I thought that was just a cool twist to it. But I did put here. I felt bad for innocent Vasor or whatever, <laughs> like because everybody's real happy at the end. I was just like, oh, what about him? Like, you got kind of got the raw end of the deal. <laughs> you know, for me, uh, kind of similar to you, and this is just more my broad impression upon seeing it. And it's been a couple months for me as well. But I think the thing that does stick with me is just the the overall feel, the mood, the tone, however you choose to describe it. It certainly is very evocative, and uh, there's something to be said for that. Um, you look at a lot of these early silent films and the acting sometimes is a bit too melodramatic uh there's a term used in theater and it's also been reappropriated for things like professional wrestling and other things of you know versions of theater called playing to cheap seats you know where you're not you you can't just perform for the people three rows back you've got to play big for you know the people up in the balcony and in some of these old silent films, they are because they can't speak. We can't hear them. They, they do right, that. Yeah. But this film, it, it, it was able to not go over that line yeah. for me. Like the, the acting was just enough that it, you know, it was somewhat nuanced, but it did have that. And it, there's that, that past quality that yeah. is uneerie. So I, I liked it quite a, quite a good deal. Sean, uh, you, you chose it. Uh, do you think uh, not only as a 1920s film, but as a horror entry, uh, does it hold up? So I was talking about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and I wanted to see if maybe this would compare to that in any way. Honestly, I would say Caligari's the better film of the two, but this one definitely had some interesting moments for me. Um, I, I love the part where he's laying in bed and he has like the, the nightmare and it's like they've double exposed the film yeah. to where there's like this giant face above him and yeah. his hand comes pressing down on it yeah that, that was crazy to me yeah. and i yeah. did before that, that they got that that was definitely wild that was one of those moments where you kind of sat up you know on the couch and but i mean the the plot maybe it's because i've seen other movies more modern movies that have used like the same idea where you've somehow transplanted the murderer's hands onto this innocent person yeah i've seen that so many times already like i felt like watching this it didn't really wow me that much yeah. but. so the story didn't quite take you there but you know it's interesting you brought up caligari because i did not know about that connection uh, preceding my screening of this and i i'm kind of glad i didn't because i would have been comparing it i think in my head like yeah. oh but it's interesting and um obviously in terms of you know hollywood tradition uh, you know, the Caligari film, it's one that you, you see a lot in film studies courses. You mentioned the German Expressionist uh, connection. But I think that this film does a decent job and it holds up on its own. Uh, if you do like that early horror, I think that this is one that could have fallen through the cracks. And I think it's worth uh, taking a look at. Yeah, you just mentioned the German Expressionism again. And there's so much of that in Caligari. But it's interesting because here it seems like he strayed away from that to to some extent went for more like a natural look right and the plot yeah is a little bit more uh both of those two films have twists but yeah this one's a bit more straightforward uh the expressionism uh in caligari 2 for memory it's more so in the set design and stuff mm -hmm. where this is a little bit more naturalistic yeah i think too when you watch it's so funny i like watching them chronologically i was excited too because i think with older films i don't know they kept more on one scene or they let it sit yeah in for a while whereas right. now everything is just real right. you got to go fast and each That's, scene yeah. is like a millisecond long 
this just was cracking me up though to a point oh, <laughs> it'd almost be uncomfortable where yeah, like it, they, uh... it was a point to where it was like all right let's go guys like let's yeah. go to the next scene but i still enjoyed it because yeah. you don't see that every day you don't see that now you, I, you know now. and there are some indie filmmakers that kind of specialize in that sort of thing and i, I would say I, drive I, recently yeah yeah so and, i just kept long um, shots long shots like I, i'm really fascinated by uh kelly reichardt a female filmmaker from uh the pacific northwest she's somebody i've mentioned in the past uh films like meek's cut off and old joy she does that i, I like that style a lot uh, i'm really fascinated by kind of slow take cinema and so that is true. And I think, you know, you mentioned the we've talked a couple times now how you watched them, you know, in chronological order. I think there is something to be said for that, uh, maybe being a favorable way because you do kind of see connections and context that you might otherwise get lost. Yeah. Um, and we'll see if maybe that will pop its head up again uh, as we push on. Anything else, Sean, before we jump into the 1930s? Uh, I'll just go ahead and give my rating. Uh, I gave it two and a half out of five. I mean, it didn't wow me as much as Caligari, uh, but it's, it's a good... A uh, decent silent horror film from the twenties. I would say three to three and a point five for me. Uh, the ending especially kind of pushed it over the edge, and I was I was definitely on board. I, I would say a four out of five because I, for me, I hadn't saw stuff like that. Sure, yeah. I haven't seen really many silent films, so for me, I really enjoyed it, and I like the weirdness of it. I so did quite me, like it, uh, yeah. maybe even more so than I thought. Up next is All Quiet on the Western Front. It is a 1930 American epic war film based on the novel of the same name. It was directed by Lewis Milestone, for which he won an Academy Award for Best Director. A young German soldier named Paul Balmer faces profound disillusionment and the soul-destroying horror of World War I. Let's just jump right into things, guys. The war film genre is a huge one. There's a lot of varying ways you can tell war stories. I found this one, I'll go ahead and say, quite profound uh, before i weigh in with my two cents what'd you guys think i thought this was very gruesome and realistic for its time i came into this right when it started and when they were in the classroom and like yeah war and stuff and i was like there's gonna be some propaganda film is that what you picked but then it actually turned around on totally on what i thought this was gonna be yeah yeah to a point where i was shocked this came out in 1930 in an era where i didn't think that was possible right. to be very to be very anti-war and i'll very... say going into this film i didn't i i knew that it was a critically heralded war film and i do like the war genre so it, it was kind of in the back of my mind uh, i selected it not really knowing anything about its plot or the contents of the film i didn't know that it was from the german side uh, that was a completely you know like when it started i'm like oh are we going to look at like you know how it affects yeah. young men in various you know yeah. reg regiments or armies no it was strictly a german story but yet it's overall message is very universal which we'll kind of come back around to they had some funny german accents yeah yeah really funny <laughs> no no subtitles here for me too i, I didn't realize even watch it when i first it was only the first couple like minutes i was like oh this is german for the german yeah. side oh weird yeah. accents here yeah <laughs> so we also watched the big parade on on this uh podcast and that that film also had this very uh pro-war kind of beginning to it and it slowly progressed into that same sort of darker side mm -hmm. of war. And I think this film does the same exact thing. And I think we both really enjoyed that film on the yeah. previous uh, episode that we did. Where the big parade kind of went for a romantic angle. Yeah. This film sticks with the realism the entire time. Yeah. 
Absolutely. You mentioned, Zach, the beginning scene where they're in the classroom, yeah. and that scene was, it, it was sort of unnerving because the the headmaster or the teacher in the classroom is just, yeah, he's like, he's literally uh, assaulting almost the students by saying, you know, what, you're not going to go to the war? Like, challenging their manhood. Yeah. He's pretty much uh, forcing them all to sign up on the spot. People are throwing their books in the air like it's the last day of school, you know, in this celebratory manner. And it's very interesting, the juxtaposition of that, because one of the first scenes when they're in their barracks, you see their old mailman from their neighborhood, who was established in like a 30-second scene earlier in the film as this kind of very charming, uh, happy-go-lucky, optimistic, you know, just the neighborhood mailman. They see him, you know, during wartime, and he's like the most, you know, extreme, you know, uh, what would you call him? I'm not sure exactly his rank, but he's some, you know, uh, official... Uh, instead of deferring to him, they're just like, hey, it's our buddy. And he's like, you know, no, line up, shut up. And it was like, whoa. Yeah. Um, and that's just one example. But uh, the, the war footage itself was, I thought, phenomenally uh, uh, photographed and the, the set pieces. I put, I put a note on here mm-hmm. that it's very large scale for its time. I, I still, uh, in the same way that with 1924 with that Haynes of Orlack, I was like, why? These are incredible for its time. It's gorgeous. Yeah, mm-hmm. like and them charging across, I can just see it in my head, you know, and there's foxholes and there's explosions and there's barbed wire and oh, there's man, muck and there's, I mean, it's really, uh, I mean, it's grotesque, but it's gorgeous, just the way that it's, how cinematic it is. Now, Paul Palmer, there's a lot of young men that we get to know throughout the film, but the main guy, his name's Paul Palmer, and he's the person that we kind of see how the war turns him. And we we see that a lot in in contemporary cinema. The Hurt Locker recently, American Sniper, I don't know if you guys have seen those films. Similar thing, the the last act, you see the the soldier come home, and he's not quite home. His, His mind's still there. Right. In this film, Paul Bomber finally gets that reprieve that everybody, you know, supposedly wants. He gets to go back home, and he's unhappy. He goes into a to a pub to have a pint, and there's a bunch of old fogies there saying, "Hey, you know, this is how the war should be fought, and this is what they should be doing." And he's thinking, you know, these guys don't know what they're talking yeah. about. I just saw my friends die. I held their mm-hmm. carcasses in my hand, you know. And he goes to the school. Uh, yeah, the I same, loved that. That was an amazing scene. This that. is where the film tipped to like. And again, I'm giving my personal opinion here. This is where it tipped into to being a great film. Like I think I gave this at least four, if not four point five. I thought it was terrific. But he goes back to the classroom where he was recruited himself years before, and the same teachers there. And he says, "Hey, tell all these young men about how great it is to join the war front, the effort." And he can't. At first, he doesn't say anything, and then he finally musters up the courage to speak the truth. And he says, "You know, it's not great." And the people, the the kids start booing him. They start <laughs> yeah. like, "You know, you loser," yeah. you know. And um, that's a powerful scene. I want to talk about one other scene that's fresh in my mind. What do you guys think about the scene where he's in a foxhole by himself, and a, 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 a soldier from the other army hops down, and he basically has to? Does he bayonet him right in the chest? I believe. Yeah, he mm-hmm. he gets him, and there's almost an instant regret in a way because he has to stay there, and he goes, "No, like, you're all right. You're going to be okay." And it almost he turns into a caretaker. He tries and, to give uh, him water, I think, or and, something. Yeah, over the course of about a five minute scene, it, it goes. It, it, it encapsulates about 12 hours from day to like night where this you know he's basically alone with this soldier who's been dead and it's just him trying to come to grips with yeah. you know the one-on-one factor of taking another man's life yeah i think that in particular almost summed up the message of the film it was like yeah. coming face to face with the reality of war what and the doing. choice of war and going yeah. to war like that was that was summed up in that one scene for me and yeah. i loved that scene 
incredible. I'm going to list one more moment that I loved, and then I can turn it over if you guys have anything left to say. But the one other thing that I want to point out, so and my all-time favorite war movie is Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line, and it's such a gorgeous film, so profound and moving and poetic and devastating that I thought that there would never be another war movie that would come close. This film, frankly, it, it, it does approach it. Um, maybe some of the mid part was a touch more melodramatic, but uh, or heavy-handed, but it, it it certainly works. But there's a scene at the very end, and this is what I think knocked it from like a four to a four point five for me. Is Balmer goes back? He he's compelled to go back. Why would should other people die when you know he left and is back home? So he goes back to the war, and there's a scene at the end where it's you know they're back, you know bullets are whizzing by, and he sees a butterfly, and it's this and this. This is the connection to Thin Red Line. You know, Malik is very into nature and attuned to the natural world and, you know, uh, spirituality. And so you see Balmer kind of reach out his hand to catch this butterfly and he gets shot. You know, him, he, he was so oblivious to the, the, you know, like so attuned to the, the, the thought of bullets whizzing by mm. that in this moment he just wanted to connect to the natural world and catch this butterfly. And that's when he gets offed. Yeah. Uh, at that point, I just like okay, this yeah. is you know a great film. Yeah, that's definitely one of my favorite scenes. Too. That's great too. I, I have one other note on here for a back on the gruesomeness. I just some very surprises got made at the time. I don't know, like yeah. You know, and there was a shot of someone holding onto barbed wire, an explosion, and then you cut back and there's just the two hands holding wow. on the thing. And I was I just like, that. are you kidding me? Like. Yeah. I don't know, like part like part of it's like it's good on its own, but knowing when it was made, I think that's for me with movies and TV shows and stuff, I always get my mind into the era when it was made. Well in nineteen ninety eight, Saving Pratt Ryan came out and for a lot of people like I saw that in the theater and to my young mind I didn't know film history really, you know, throughout the decades. So to me that was completely revolutionary. Yeah. But knowing, yeah, that fifty eight years before that there was a film where two hands got left on a barbed wire yeah. fence. And- that's pretty mind blowing. Yeah, it, it, and and like I said, like getting my head into that era and stuff, it's just crazy. They made this such a big, large scale film, and just I loved it. I would probably say four point five as well. Yeah. to that, it's just it was great. And I wish I would have taken a note. Uh, and you can look this up on Wikipedia. I hate to just defer to uh, a, a, another resource, but there was something. Uh, I don't know if it was the director or the screenwriter, but somebody that was heavily involved in this film did decide to escape the war in terms of like he ripped up his draft card or something to that nature and was blacklisted uh, for quite a long time from Hollywood and eventually I forget it was one of the the kind of the divas the Hollywood starlets was able to use her power to like bring this guy back from the blacklist okay. so uh, if you're into the more detail but this is a film that I wholeheartedly uh, uh, recommend Sean did you uh, score this one yeah I gave this a four um, there are a couple scenes that I kind of wanted to go back sure, to sure please uh, we were talking about when they were first in the in the school and how pro-war that felt and everything and we get this shot right before they're signing up for going off to war it's just close-ups of their faces and they're like so happy they're just way more happy than anyone should be to go to war those close-ups made me realize like this was going to take a sarcastic tone towards Mm. this because it was just overly dramatic how happy they were Yeah. yeah and then another scene that i enjoyed was um also at the beginning there when we start to see like this parade going through the town i loved how the camera was like inside the building so we see like this interior view of this building and we're also seeing that that exterior i thought that was like really nice really depth at the very beginning shot yeah absolutely so yeah i gave it a four i yeah 
like you guys it blew me away excellent so I guess we'll move on to the 1940s then for the 1940s I chose 1946's The Big Sleep he sauntered in the choppers such a sweet sweet guy was he and her tears flowed like wine yes her tears flowed like wine She's a real sad tomato. She's a busted valentine. Knows her mama done told her that a man is darned unkind. The Big Sleep is a Howard Hawks film. It stars Humphrey Bogart and Warren Bacall. Uh, I didn't know this myself, but Bogart and Bacall were married to each other around the time The Big Sleep was released. And this is an example of a film that will completely confuse you to where you have no idea what's happening. And yet, for some reason, you don't even really care because what's happening is still that interesting that it keeps your attention. I mean, I thought I had a good idea about what was going on when I got to the end, but you get there and you don't even realize what half of what's going on. In a way, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson's recent film, Inherent Vice, probably owes something to this film. Uh, and, th of course, the novel by Pynchon probably yeah, does as well. I could see that. Another interesting fact is that the screenplay was written in part by William Faulkner. Hmm. So, yeah, this film's about a detective named Philip Marlowe who finds himself caught in a twisted web of sneaky characters who all try to pull one over on someone else. So, uh... Let's hear what you guys thought about this. I'll jump in first, Zach, because you might have a little bit more to say. It's funny, uh, in, in the months leading up to this, I I only have some brief notes on the films that I selected. I had forgotten this one was even part of the uh, lineup of ten. But I want to say uh, my initial impression as I was watching it, because you mentioned that you don't really care where it gets you to because it's so magnetic, and I can agree that that was my experience entirely. The first 20 to 25 minutes, I'm like, okay, the film noir... Um, genre. It's beloved by a lot of cinephiles. I haven't dwelled deep enough to consider myself a fan or even a fair weather one at that. And so at first, you know, we get these kind of iconic character actors at the time. And I'm, but at some point around the 20 minute mark, Comfrey Bogart, you know, just started owning it. And I started immediately, like a, a switch went on and I, I totally got his charm. Like, a guy pulls a gun out in a hotel room uh, or an apartment, and he just, you know, talks the dude down with the muzzle of the gun right in his nose. He just talks smack <laughs> to this guy, you know, brazenly. And I'm like, what a badass. Yeah. And, um, and like, yeah, he just, like, pimp slaps. <laughs> like, he was just like, so, you know, at first I, I, I kind of saw his kind of, in my opinion, screen-munching qualities, you know, and I'm like, okay. And Lauren Bacall, I, I kind of considered her. I actually felt she was kind of a cold fish at the beginning. I'm like, these are the two, like, biggest, you know, stars of but as the film progressed i kind of it kind of weaved me into its web uh, and you're right the machinations of the plot in terms of it's a detective story but like you know there's dead ends and stuff i didn't even care to try you know i i knew that i i might not be able to to keep with it entirely and i don't know that they need you to but it's ultimately just going along uh, for the ride. Mm -hmm. And there are some good surprises and stuff along the way. Zach, how did you find this? Because this isn't really, there's not a lot of modern equivalencies to this type of film. Yeah, I uh, I liked the, I haven't seen many, many like film noir like type films and stuff. So I think they're fun. And uh, this is also like the first, from my recollection, first hum Humphrey Bogart that I've seen him, so I loved him in this. There was so many quick one-liners and so many, like you said, like talking smack, it was it made me laugh at certain times where I was like, I love this guy. And yeah. he's just, 
has a certain charm to him. And like you said, like right from the start when you were talking about the film, talking about Inherent Vice, as you were talking, I was like, Inherent Vice, and you mentioned it. So yeah. I loved that recently. But yeah. watching this one, though, I was so scared to come onto this and do this podcast. I was like, I'm going to feel like an idiot because they're going to know everything about this plot. But I'm glad to know <laughs> yeah. that you guys were lost as well. Because no. I was like, well, man, well, here's a, a trouble a... keeping track. But... And the same thing, I, I put, like, I got lost in it in the same way Inherent Vice did. I just love to just go along for the ride. I don't really understand a lot of it. But you would know from the reactions, like, oh, he's got him or whatever, yeah. but I don't know why. And, yeah. Well, I don't know. Here's an interesting note about the plot. Um, they actually were in talks with uh, Raymond Chandler, who wrote the novel for this. And they wanted to know who killed the limousine driver. And even Raymond Chandler, the guy who wrote the book, couldn't tell them exactly who character the killer a, was. Yeah, was the killer. Yeah. So I mean, I think it was just meant to be that way. Yeah. Yeah, and again, that the parallel we're making to Inherent Vice, there are some things that are kind of left unresolved mm-hmm. in that film. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it was quite good, uh, Sean. So. I, I'm taking it kind of as we're going here that you were kind of on the same boat as us that you were kind of wowed by it and enjoyed yeah. the the uh, the ride. Yeah, I gave it a four and a half out of five. Um, the def- definitely the uh, witty dialogue was great. Uh, I I love the line when at the very beginning uh, the uh, butler comes and the other guy's like, "Hey, do you want a drink?" And he's like, "How do you how do you take your brandy?" And Bogart's like in a glass. I mean, just <laughs> yeah. so, so simple, but it's great. And then another thing, I kept catching Bogart doing this thing where he would pinch his earlobe. Mm. And it's crazy, but that small gesture like totally made his entire act believable. Like, yeah. Throughout the whole film, like every time he did that, I was like, oh, there he goes. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, there's those little, yeah, Joaquin Phoenix, again, not necessarily inherent vice, but he's a guy that does things like that. Um, and usually when you see a character trick like that, it's something that might be programmed into the plot as like a herring to like, you know, like I just saw the film Selfless, don't bother, uh, by the <laughs> way. But there's a particular character in that that flicks his glasses and it's a signal for something. But um, but sometimes actors take it upon themselves to give their characters a little bit more um, personality, whether it's a, a particular hunch. Philip Seymour Hoffman was great at that, you know, making a, a certain gait to how they walk, mm-hmm. things like that. I would probably say, uh, I don't remember my exact score. I want to say I gave it a 3.5. I feel that's yeah. a safe bet. I'd probably give this a 4. I liked it. Yeah. One other thing, like, there was so much sexual innuendo in this. Uh, yes. I love yeah, the right. scene where he goes to the bookstore across the street, and he has a drink with this lady. But, you know, there's like a cut there. We don't know what happened <laughs> in that bookstore, and yeah. I just, I love. Yeah, they probably read some books. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think more than a drink was yeah. going on. <laughs> was bored. Yeah, they were reading each other some sonnets. You guys want to get into the 1950s with me? Yes. Oh, yeah. All right. A man escaped. A man escaped is a 1956 French film directed by the great Robert Brosson. It is based on the memoirs of André Devigny, who was a member of the French Resistance who was held in prison by the occupying Germans during World War II. Uh, The protagonist of the film is called Fontaine. And interesting to note before we discuss the movie itself, the director, Brassan, he himself was imprisoned by the Germans uh, as a member of the French Resistance. So he was culling a a bit uh, from his own life uh, in this one. 
Prasanna is a filmmaker who uh, I've discovered in the last couple of years, and I think is, is he's probably throttled his way into like my top ten. Uh, I know you weren't so big on Diary of a Country Priest, uh, which right. is one that we've tackled, but he has uh, a filmography that that really stands. Uh, I, I feel the test of time. Let's let's kind of get into it. Sean, set the table uh, because it's a fairly in in one way it's a fairly simple movie, but yet the ultimate effect is is quite profound. Yeah, the, I mean, the beginning of the film was very slow, and that's that's one of Brisson's trademarks, I think. Uh, he's, he's very slow and simple calculating, and uh, I, I enjoyed all of the small details of him figuring out the best way he could escape from the, the cell, and there was a lot of suspense that came with that. I mean, and all he was doing was uh, just finding the tools he needed to get out. It's it's almost a. I've heard some people liken it to like a procedural, because it, it's less interested in, in like plot, you know, revelations and kind of general storytelling. It's more so watching him um, figure out. Okay, at this time of night, you know, I can afford to be a little bit louder. I can chisel my bed springs, or I can, you know. Uh, but yeah, the the film it, it doesn't have you know peaks and valleys as far as storytelling goes. It pretty much is an even till through most of it. As you're just watching him build up, build up, build up to when he can make this great escape. Mm-hmm. Another thing I noticed was like we don't ever get a really good look at the German uh, guards that are at this prison, uh, and I, I'm not entirely sure what what that means. Um, maybe Brisson felt like he didn't want to have them overshadow the performance of his main character it could be a symbolic thing too i don't know this but perhaps and this could be reaching but fontaine is so focused on this one task that to him they are faceless antagonists you know he doesn't identify them as individuals they're just you know distractions that are keeping him from his ultimate goal oh, I like that. so he's so focused because he really does have this silly trap of a mind uh to get out of there because he knows you know being involved with the french resistance and stuff there's he, there's no hope for him and we see throughout the film people get taken down to the courtyard and, and shot for you know smaller offenses than trying to escape and so like he kind of knows that his days are ultimately numbered mm-hmm. um but yeah that, that could be it uh zach you kind of mentioned in the intro out of the blue uh shawshank you know uh redemption uh, another uh prison break films so where does this one land for you i love this and you mentioning like the soldiers and stuff and i i think i like i like your ideal in this and that i think they were he was just so focused on this guy's story and to me i was i was interested in this movie from beginning to end this never made me look away from the television like i was just so just focused on this guy gonna get out and ooh, just every single move he did just had me just kind of scared and every once in a while something would be you know another hurdle or obstacle would get jumped you know in his way including and ultimately towards the end of the film is he gets a bunk mate yeah and he has to grapple with you know is this guy a legitimate prisoner is he an insider an informant that's been sent here to spy on me and like he has to really make a decision either i go full bore and tell him what i'm doing he obviously can't continue on his current path with the guy there does he try to kill the guy like i mean (laughs) what are your options at this point you've worked so hard and came this far i also liked how there was there was basically no music in the film from what i can remember again i think zoning in on just zoning in like so intently on we have to get out of here and I think that actual escape at the end, just I couldn't breathe through the whole thing. I love how simplistic it was, yeah. though. Like, 
how matter of fact and assured it was like yeah. it just happened yeah. it wasn't glorified in a, 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 the hollywood tradition you know there wasn't swelling music yeah. or this yeah. crystalline moment it was just kind of like it happened our feet touched the ground we take out the so it just happens and that's it yeah. and it's just like it's uh it's this relief yeah because you've been kind of you know holding your breath or sitting on the edge of your seat for so long that it's kind of like yeah. i really really enjoyed it in the sense of just having a clear purpose and i love movies that i'm fine with just building up and having a slow burn mm -hmm. as long as you explode at yeah. one point and, and using everything you build up to to just make this yeah. huge fireworks like at the end so i think this did that well so i like that kind of movie sean scores uh what would you what'd you give percents so when i watched this and i started thinking about it afterwards um I think I found out what bothers me about some of these old French films. <laughs> yeah, I know. Tell us. <laughs> and I think it might be all of the voiceover mm -hmm. that that's just constant throughout. And there's the lack of music, and it's just so. It's very jarring, I would say, yeah. Yeah, to to most audiences, especially Western audiences. But I, I went ahead and read uh, Roger Ebert's review of this, and he says basically the same thing. Bersan does everything so simply but yet complex at the same time. There's no beauty shots, no trick shots. It's reduced to its simplest form. And that's kind of what I don't like. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's the... I assume, too, Ebert, did he have this in his great uh, films canon? I think he probably did. I imagine he gave he it did. four stars. Yeah, so it probably landed in his great films catalog. But we mentioned, you know, like the soaring music and everything, and like I feel like those things, they add something for me that helps me get into it. And yeah. With this film, it, I find it hard to get into that. Yeah. Zach, where would you place it? I would say a four out of five. This is my right up my alley. We're kind yeah. of opposite on that sense. Yeah. Of, yeah, I would say. I like more simplistic, slow burn, kind of stuff like that. I would say it's hovering around a four for me. And if anything, if I knocked it to a 3.5, it would only be because I'd probably be unfairly you know, stacking it against some of Prasan's other films that I might have uh, a tick higher. But yeah, I, I quite enjoyed this one. Yeah, I was at a two and a half on this. Uh, I, I didn't completely hate it. Um, and out of all of the Brisson films I've seen, it's definitely better than Diary of a Country Priest, I'll say that. Because uh, it actually had some suspense to it, this film. And, but I think Pickpocket is my, my go-to Brisson. So yeah, far. which I did see myself uh, a couple months back and quite liked. I guess we'll move on to the groovy the, 60s. Yeah, the groovy 60s. You stole it right out of my mouth. That's right. <laughs> With a 1967's film, David Holtzman's Diary. So, uh, the uh, noted French wit, Jean-Luc Godard, said, uh, what is film? Film is truth 24 times a second. So I thought that if... I put it all down on film, and I run it back and forth, and I put my thumb on it, and I stop it when I want to, then I got everything. I got it all. I should get it all. I should get it all. I should get the meaning. I should understand it. So this is what this is going to be. Uh, this is, this, I'm going to make a diary, like uh, the famous Lulu's diary, uh, my diary. My diary. David Holtzman's diary is a Jim McBride directed docufiction. So it's a film that's kind of pretending to be a documentary, but it still contains documentary aspects. 
David Holtzman is a man obsessed with filming everything with his camera. He takes it too far with his girlfriend and pretty much everyone else he encounters. He uses his camera as a way to look for answers and is disappointed when he realizes he can't find any. The audience, however, is given some pretty insightful ideas about the film's false reality and life. So what do you guys think? Uh, how David Holtzman's diary uh, for you? I, I get a feeling I could be the outlier here. Uh, so before I say, uh, uh, Zach, this is probably quite different than anything you may have encountered so far in your cinema studies. Uh, what did you think of this kind of unique film? I don't know if this is going to surprise you guys. This was my favorite movie of the 10. Wow. Yeah. I am a little surprised, and I'm not the outlier, because it was one. I, I don't know uh, right now if I could land my favorite. Maybe at the end I can conclude with that, but uh, it was one of my favorites as well. <laughs> Me too. Which, you know, Sean, I didn't know anything about the movie. I heard the title but the the, the original the, the package art that I had seen was that robot uh, yeah. which is like on a poster I think in the background but for some reason I always assumed it was almost like a Dr. Frankenstein film yeah. like a sci-fi movie about a guy who is like <laughs> it's his diary as he makes a robot or something Turned I had no idea that it was you know what it ended up being but Zach tell us more funny enough I what a journey I had with this movie I thought it was an actual documentary I thought this guy was actually doing it for the first maybe 30 minutes, 40 minutes. I'm an idiot, I guess. Until oh, later, really? I, looked, yeah. I looked it up and found out it was a docufiction. And I was like, oh. But I still enjoyed it. Like, once I hit the halfway point, I was like, okay, there's something. There, there's not a lot of, of like, telltale signs. Yeah, there's not. I don't not. think, really. Like, if I didn't know a little bit uh, going into my first screening, I, I think, yeah. It took that guy in front of the painting when he was like, you're trying to do this. And right. You're trying to do that. Yeah. That was He's the arguing with the guy. It was about kind of like, and... okay, you'd be out of here if this yeah. is real. Right by now yeah. but it, it took that finally to get me to go oh oh this isn't real but i think it was just so fascinating to see life in this year in the 60s just walking around outside and that's a cool thing about a uh, film in general but especially documentaries is that they're time capsules and yeah. i've heard a quote that any any even narrative film because it's shot somewhere as long as it's not like on a set somewhere if it's shot out in the field it's kind of like a time capsule because it takes you somewhere and there's been a lot of films uh that have to varying degrees done things like this like exit through the gift shop a few years ago where it's like oh is this real is it not real i don't know uh does it matter no like is are you intrigued um a movie that i saw recently that shot almost entirely in, in central park i think around this well the 70s symbiotoxyplasm i believe it's got the super long title but it was a movie that was about a movie about making a movie that's so meta and there's different layers that I was just completely wrapped up into it and and the more it was like a, a, the more that it set with me in the, the days and the weeks that you know after the fact the more that it, it just grew stronger and, and yeah this film does kind of have that uh, that it, it wowed me in similar ways uh, I have quite a couple notes on this <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and uh, uh, one portion where he watches TV all day and he just sets the camera up and you just get to see a fast forwarded like like a normal day in television in the 60s. So the I think the time and... capsule part was intriguing, and the other part was, what other movie do you just have these weird little just, I don't know, looking through the, I don't know, time and seeing, like, this is what a normal day was, or this yeah. is this going on. So uh, another thing I listen here, I don't know if you've ever, if you guys have seen this on YouTube, but there's a guy on YouTube uh, named... Uh, surveillance man have you guys have heard of that oh, or whatever no, I haven't. this guy named surveillance man he's very controversial because what he does is he'll take a camera out he'll go out in the streets and he'll film someone and the person's like hey uh, uh, stop filming me stop and they'll either get very violent with him or they'll just be kooky and be weird with him 
and he'll just keep filming them to a point where you're very uncomfortable and the comments are filled with a split of, hey, this guy's trying to make a statement over surveillance. Sure. And then the other side is, this is just harassment. He needs to leave right. these people this alone. And other people going back and forth of, but there's surveillance cameras around all of you. That's what he's trying to show. That's his message. Yeah. And I don't know either or how I feel about it because there's some right. certain things where it's like, he just needs to back off or right. maybe he does have a point. I don't know. This movie kind of was almost like the prequel to that, and that yeah. uh, there are certain times where he's uncomfortably filming people. I mm-hmm. think it certainly and predates the YouTube, the selfie, the Instagram, Snapchat, so. you know, yeah. generation. Like this film is very forward thinking in that regard about like living your life through a screen or like projecting something. Because you know, did he ever give a thesis as to why he was filming? I don't think so. He was just compelled to. He, he said like. that he wanted to like. It, to help him explain his life or like find a purpose to, or something. To, to, he wanted control of his life. He wanted yeah. to be able to go back and look at everything and find the answers. That's like, true, yeah. And what he saw. The two major kind of, uh, two of the more interesting scenes or components to me that, that stuck with me were one is you mentioned in your synopsis where he drives his girlfriend away. Because at first, I got to tell you guys, when he's talking about, oh, my girlfriend, she's a model, I'm thinking bull crap like i'm just <laughs> laughing i'm like this guy like because he kind of gives you uh, that point there's no reason to trust him and he seems a little bit shaky a little bit shady perhaps you know maladjusted and so at that point i'm thinking yeah right like this guy like he's gonna you know give an excuse why she didn't show up but yeah no there is a girl but he does ultimately push her away because he <laughs> refuses to stop recording even in her time of need or crisis where she just needs a shoulder which also that, that that's really interesting in itself that whole part um because she is a model so mm. she should be used to having a camera yeah. in her face i think it's that 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 disconnect though there's a certain point where like you want to let your uh your care you know you want to you know, put away all uh projections of yourself like she just wanted to be vulnerable mm-hmm. and be herself and lay on the bed and just talk and but she felt, you know, when the camera's on, she couldn't quite, you know. Uh, I think that's part of it. And I think skin. part of it too is this is the pre-YouTube era, yeah. where like it's not as common. Even though this was fake, people were looking like even if they were instructed to, that was probably realistic in that mm-hmm. sense. Like, what else could you have? That's a good transition to. I want to talk about the scene towards the end with the. Uh, I don't know if they were transgender or the prostitute in the car. Right. Yeah. 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 Because the scene goes on for quite a bit. And it, it's, I believe, mostly, if not just one take, you can see it, it's causing a disturbance because, you know, he's talking to this woman. Uh, I assume it was a woman or a man. I, it's, the, the, you know, lines are a bit blurred there. Um, and there's some flirtation and there's some. But anyway, she's in a car that's parked in front of his house, which is a brownstone in New York. And there's, you know, cars all around beeping and honking. Move it, F you, you yeah. know. And, and so it's kind of a hostile environment, but they don't cut. They don't turn away. Like, the scene unrolls kind of naturally. And when it finally did end, I was like, oh, wait. I, I wanted to know kind of how that resolved. Like, did yeah, they just yeah. drive off? Did he stay in contact with this kooky personality that he met? Yeah. Um, what, that was a, the other scene that, to me, is one that stands out. It's crazy. Um, like, you could watch. I could have watched that scene go on forever. forever. I mean, yeah, it was just it, life happening. Yeah. And because it was not him resolved kind of in his room and in his very internalized, this world that he's created you know it was out on the streets where you can't control it that's why i think it was even more compelling and memorable because you know it it was out in the wild so to speak uh, of new york city two other really memorable scenes for me were when he is 
out in front of those park benches and I guess it's in like the shape of a V and he has the camera and all these old people and he's filming all of these old people and that's when I was still on the mindset I think when I thought it was real yeah, and like, I was like oh. how freaky would this be if this giant film camera this guy. is coming up and just you get to see all these people's faces and everyone's yeah, reaction or everyone just resting and sitting on yeah. this bench and then it goes around Turns around, you get to see. And for me, I was like, other people would hate this, but I'm loving every single second. But that that weird brings list. up a good point, you know. Like, was that scene staged? Do we, we don't even yeah, know. We, yeah. we have no way of knowing what in this movie was That's actually true. candid and what wasn't. And it could have been on the fly, or it could have been a simple, you know, agreement, a gentleman's agreement. Like, hey, we're going to film, you know, we this guy's going to walk up and down here you know don't feel the need to to act or anything just be natural like that's what i assumed because right. some of the people are disinterested or distracted they're not paying attention to him but there's, as you there's might other imagine. people that are kind of watching the so like, of the camera. You know, yeah it, it, it's interesting so i love that and yeah. one other uh that was neat was when he got the fisheye camera and he's holding it above his head mm-hmm. he's like, i got this new lens look at it and you get to see <laughs> in the very sides yeah. of the film people are like Wow. You are a maniac. Yeah, like, yeah. how big those cameras were at the time. Yeah. How weird that would have been regardless on his own. And There's there's something to be said, I think, about this uh, docu-fiction. And, and also, too, just jo- uh, Jonas Mekas is a documentarian who kind of uh, was around during the kind of beat generation, like 60s and and, and, all, and beyond that. But he, he, he was one of those people, he was a real person who felt that compulsion to almost capture everything. And subsequently, over the years, he released several, you know, long films but it's just you know it's interesting to look at these snapshots of other times places people this movie was so weird i would actually give it a full five out of five because this is right up my alley this is right up with everything i enjoy in film so i think i gave it a 4.5 and i was surprised i didn't like i said i I knew very little going into it yeah i gave it a four as well and liked it quite a lot okay guys put on your best suede jacket Get really comfy in that shag carpet because we're going into the 70s with a grin without a cat. Why? Sometimes. Do images begin to tremble? To me, it happened in May 68, Boulevard Saint Michel. Mine, in Prague, in the summer. When I saw the rushes, I saw the shaking. I thought I had controlled my hands, but the camera caught the mood. In Santiago, under the Popular Unity Party, things were not moving quickly. Perhaps I was just upset at seeing the situation reversed, so to speak seeing those water cannon deployed where we'd seen them used so often against left-wing demonstrators elsewhere. It's a 1977 French essay film by Chris Marker. Now, I said at the beginning of the show that I didn't have a lot of notes. This particular film is a three-plus hour. At one point, it was a four-hour film. Uh, It's a pretty dense film, Um, and so I am going to read some background information that might help uh, us along in, in the process of unpacking uh, this documentary because we need it we do need a little bit of help <laughs> and, and for those that have not seen the film which I imagine is the majority of our listeners uh, this might kind of give you at least an idea of what the aim was in the film <laughs> so it focuses on global political turmoil in the 1960s and 1970s particularly the rise of the new left in France 
the development of socialist movements in Latin America. Using the image of Lewis Carroll's Cheshire Cat from An Alice in Wonderland, the film's title evokes a dissonance between the promise of a global socialist revolution, which would be the grin, with its actual non-existence. So kind of a play on words. Uh, the film features many interviews with French communist leaders, students, and sociologists. Uh, the Prague Spring of 1968 is featured with footage of Fidel Castro uh, talking. He explains his political support of the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. If you're bearing with us, we're just entering into the film. Uh, while questioning the legality of the action, uh, other sections deal with different events, the rise of Salvador Allende, Minamita poisoning in Japan, the Watergate scandal in the U.S., uh, there are many subtle references to cats throughout the film. I know you're a big cat lover, Sean. Oh, yeah. Maybe that won you over a bit. As well as some brief <laughs> shots of raccoons, which seems to be probing uh, many uh, viewers. Jay Hoberman, a uh, legendary film writer of The Village Voice, his review seemed mixed, maybe slightly positive. But one uh, quote I pulled from it was, quote, more impressionistic than analytical. A grin without a cat is a grand immersion it is a track without a thesis, question mark? <laughs> um, uh, a couple more notes here. Uh, it's a three-hour, two-part film. The first half is called Fragile Hands. The second part is Severed Hands. Not unlike the ones on the Barbar fence from World War One we discussed before. Um, it's assemblage of documentary footage, much of it shot by Marker himself over more than a decade, which is quite cool, um, combined with found footage from numerous sources. There are some cinema clips. Uh, including the beginning shots from Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin, which we may have talked about in a previous episode. Music by Luciano Berrio, and a first-person narration written by Marker, but it was spoken by a different group of actors. Uh, Chronicles Radical Struggle Moves. And, and this kind of is a more poetic explanation of what I said before, from hero insurrection to reactionary retrenchment, from a great energy of protest to the authoritarian clampdowns, is often profoundly moving, but a stilly skepticism counters any effect of romance. The last thing I'm going to say, guys, before we talk about this film, is a rare moment of wisdom from an Amazon.com review. We know how infrequent those are. Uh, this person says, and I quote, uh, It's some kind of work of genius. Rent it, watch it. Don't get mad at yourself for falling asleep twice. You might emerge thinking that, in spite of all that, it's the best thing you've ever seen. I don't know that I'd go that far, but I do think it's a film potentially worth discussing. A Grim Without a Cat, guys. I'm turning it over to you. I've said uh, this spiel. Let's uh, get off the cuff with it. Well, I know I had a rough time getting through this. Uh, and I, I think I may have had an easier time watching it if I had been alive when all of this was happening. Because for me, that, that was the biggest uh, Disconnect. struggle I had. Uh -huh. Uh, trying to figure out the politics behind all of these events and having not lived through them. And trying to make connections from right. these various, yeah. But there are so many different politics presented in the film as well, and they're not all black and white, good and bad. Um, it sort of makes you question whether revolutions are worth fighting for because sometimes they lead to bigger conflicts. Uh, I just I thought that was really interesting. There were some practical difficulties I had. One of them, you know, so the DVD itself, you know, it says, you know, as you're watching it in Dutch, French, English, you hit it. There's no chapters, I, I found out, because I had to watch it in segments. A lot of times, uh, you know, sometimes I'll watch movies as my son passes out on the couch. And so, you know, this one, it didn't have English subtitles throughout. It only had 
the non-English language speaking subtitle. So the other stuff, you know, I had to crank the sound up really loud, which is difficult because, you know, there's all manner of brutality. And so it, I ended up having to watch it quite late at night in segments. Um, uh, well, let me k- kick it to you, Zach, before I get uh, my mind completely twisted around itself <laughs> like a cat's tail. Uh, for me, uh, yeah, it was hard to follow. This took about two or three sittings for me mm-hmm. because of how long it was and just right. was busy at the time. But, man, it uh, was very hard to follow. Uh, I think what kind of combined with that, I wasn't familiar, like you said, with the political events of that time. Sure. And some of the names they mentioned, I felt were like, if you were to watch this at the time it came out, you would be more of like, oh, that guy and yeah. whatever. But to me, they'd mention somebody. I'm like, who is he? Why do I, why do I care? Yeah. yeah. Um, but at the same time, I kind of took that in with that knowledge of not knowing who these people were going, I'll just take it along and see what they're talking about. And I did take a lot from the film. Of uh, first, it was kind of really crazy to see young Fidel Castro just talking yeah, like, and like kind of raw footage. Because uh, I, what kind? I like movies that kind of spark up like these like um, documentaries and stuff. To where I like to look in on Wikipedia and start to watch YouTube videos of what was going on at this time and what's the sides here. Why was this person controversial? And then yeah, what were this the kind stakes? of movie jump started me in that weird. I like going down that rabbit hole of uh, mm-hmm. certainly kind of uh, finding out. Ooh, what is this? And why was he controversial? I like what he said here, but he's kind yeah. of a bad guy, but he's a good guy. And you start right. to go down this weird gray yeah. area of, well, he did this, but this was good. So uh, I, I, I thought this was crazy too when it started getting artistic in that it used, like it would jump from yellow. The film would be yellow and it right. would jump to blue and then red and then yellow. Yeah, a lot of that archival footage, I think, I don't know exactly the, the, the definition behind each particular color, if there was a symbolism, but I yeah. think, you know, because there's so much archival footage to kind of differentiate it, you know, the film did uh, use colorization techniques yeah. uh, to maybe kind of almost like chapter stops or, you know, to, to kind of. I think one of the interesting things about this film for me is the sheer um, goal, and, and but also the, the artistic. To, to, to tackle on something like this of its time, you got to think about it in this way. Today, if you wanted to make this film, it would be a lot simpler. Mm-hmm. You would simply pull up a database of clips that would all be, you know, timelined out. You could look at, okay, I want to look at 60s, blah, 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 you know, everything. Here, you know, they were literally, he was coloring, uh, culling, you know, ingredients, you know, from the master sources. At one point, there was something that was happening in Chile. And he's like, you know, the film canister said 1968. Like they didn't even know exactly what this or when, you know, but but the can that they found, you know, and I thought that's really interesting. Yeah. The fact that he, what he had to go through to assemble this footage was Probably really, it, that should have been a documentary within itself. And that type of, you know, seeing it through, uh, it, it's very different than how this film would be made uh, present day. One of my um, kind of early adversions to it so I don't watch the news. Uh, I I purposely kind of avoid it. I can watch all manners of violent films, but when it comes to actual people being harmed, uh, whatever the case, I, I find it you know difficult. I, I tend to avoid that sort of thing. And so you know, very early into this film, you're confronted with scenes of violence. Whether people are fighting you know for good causes or not, you see people being harmed. The scene in the helicopter the street. comes to mind. Yeah, when they're firing on the just people in the fields. Yeah, so there's watch. there and that was a bit. So part of me was like, you know, I don't really want to encounter this part of humanity. But the other part of me was like, you know, as I'm experiencing, like, you know, like if I knew that it was going to be this heavy, maybe I wouldn't have picked it. But it didn't. Ultimately, uh, after you've finished it, I, I came away with you know a 
perspective, you know, that I didn't have going into it. So in some sense, whether it worked as a film or not is arguable, but it was somewhat of a rewarding experience. There is one moment that uh, I, it was kind of indicative of that. So you have a guy in Vietnam, an American pilot, and there's this – you have this unadulterated access that I've never seen before where literally he's got a camera in the cockpit with him. And he's talking to it as informally as you would if you were waiting in line at the gas station. Mm-hmm. And he's just talking about, well, hey, this is you know how many you know uh, uh, bombs that we hold and this is how much you know um, whatever and you know this is how much and and so we're dropping it and these are you know and, and, and you literally see him doing passes dropping you know all this ammunition and uh, firebomb and it was just but like the smile and the sense of satisfaction on his face like it was a job that he did. To him, it seemed it was so casual that it was almost frightening. How you know something to this is such such a major thing to do. Yeah. That disconnect. That was a really like. Um, and again, I don't know what it says, but there is something about that experience. I've never been in a pilot, you know, in Vietnam, you know, in a, in a plane before. But now I, I kind of feel like I have, have like yeah. a fly on the wall. And there's something powerful about that. It's interesting because like proximity. That's just, that's just one piece of this whole puzzle, and. Does that even really connect to anything else in the film? I can't. I can't really tell if there are a million connections here, or if there's a million separate pieces. If it's an assemblage of right, and I think that's what's most interesting about this film is you're allowed to watch it and see it the way you want to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can put all the pieces together however you want. You can inject your own politics into it. There was another scene that I I liked. Um, and it, this is just, I mean, like you said, something that I don't feel like we've seen much of. Uh, it's where they show like this war tactics and weaponry exhibition where they're basically selling weapons and they're selling like tactics of like disguise and traps and things yeah. like that. And it's almost like a trade show for, yeah. uh, yeah, I, I that just, was really that blew me away. That this that guy's giving a little happened. like a, like a sell speech, and all of a sudden a guy pops out of a you know a, yeah. a, 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 out of the ground with a machine gun. The, the surprise, you know, yeah, it, it felt that, that felt weird, yeah. sort of yeah that that did feel a, a bit eerie. And the, you got these you know felt like something Vice would do if you guys have seen Vice right and yeah and you have these well dressed kind of like business for Hulk you know being led around this tour. Yeah, and it happens twice in the film, like once more towards the beginning, and then we see it again at the end, and you can tell it's kind of a more recent a occurrence. Yeah. So it's like, I feel like that, that for me, was Marker saying, you know, we haven't learned anything from yeah. this. How would you uh, grade something like this? <laughs> Personally, uh, I wouldn't want to watch it again, uh, because it's so long, and it's so disjointed, and... I, I mean, I gave it two and a half out of five, but I do think there were some things there that were interesting to see. Yeah. I'd say two and a half, three is about fair because yeah. of how jarring it was. And I think I would have maybe enjoyed it more if I came in knowing what was going on. Right. There's I, a lot of maybe backstory you need or you need to have lived it, I yeah. think, that you need to. I, you know, and it's interesting to look at it as a historical it. piece. But, uh, you know, I finished it last night and I didn't put a score uh, attached to it when I uh, – logged it on letterbox and i haven't yet but i would say i'm probably around that same boat two two and a half yeah a grin without a cat you know <laughs> i, I want to say too quickly uh the reason that i chose this film i also didn't know much about it I, I i referenced in the past the website they shoot pictures don't they in their top 1000 films of all time which is annually updated once a year you can categorize the list in different ways by you know the date of release 
by blah 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 by the date uh, but I you can also organize it by the length of the films and so I, I usually like to look at the top 30 or 40 longest movies because I'm <laughs> I consider myself a bit of a perverse cinematic sadomasochist and that I like to try to endure these eight nine hour movies and for some reason this one was one that was long and we needed a 70s selection and not knowing what I was getting myself into I said yeah grin without a cat but uh, I think one last thing I want to say is like I said this was kind of a diving board into the era and what was going on and I think you know I did I do give this like a lower score than the other stuff the other movies that we watched but to me I, I I had a fun time kind of challenging myself and going like why did these people do that like you know growing up in America we hate communism socialism all that you know what I mean anything yeah. that isn't capitalism and and he, you know what I mean, like that kind of stuff. So watching this was kind of a movie where it's like you look around, like anybody watching me is Uncle Sam. Like right. I hope he's not watching me watch this because it was a very yeah. Oh, and one one other thing I forgot I didn't even mention on here that wasn't there a scene there. There's a there's some shocking footage where they're protesting, and I think correct me if I'm wrong. They're in front of the White House or they're in front of somewhere, and they there's so many of them that they go, we can just break these barriers, and they go like really close to the White House. Is that where it was? Yeah. They get really close the, uh, to the White the House. Second half, yeah. And I that just blew, that was probably the most standout scene for me, actually. Because this kind of, of moment where yeah, something <laughs> like that can turn to something. Yeah, I mean, you do get that got, kind of crazy. you know, you do get some of that on the ground footage that is priceless. These reels, you know, uh, some of them, like we said, are a bit unsettling, but yeah, mm. it's, it's an interesting artifact. Of I think it's time. a challenging film. Yep. If, if you look into it and it's like, why were they doing this? What would make your mindset like this, or why would you support people like this? And, yeah. It was interesting. Well, let's head over to my 1980s pick with 1988's The Thin Blue Line. started putting the facts together on how much information we actually had, we found out we didn't have anything. We'd never really gone that long in Dallas without clearing the murder of a police officer. We'd had several killed, but we'd always cleared them pretty quick. However, we finally got the break that cleared it. This film is my introduction to Aaron Morris, who was encouraged by Werner Herzog to make his first film, Gates of Heaven, about the pet cemetery business. And The Thin Blue Line is a documentary that tells the story of Randall Adams, who found himself hitching a ride with a man named David Ray Harris on the 27th of November, 1976. At some point that night, the car Harris had stolen from his neighbor was pulled over by police officer Robert W. Wood and his partner because its headlights were off. Before Wood could make it to the car to tell the driver his lights were off, however, he was shot twice by someone in the car, which immediately proceeded to drive off. The film chooses to show all this through reenactments of the scene of the crime. And when I first read that that was how this film chose to portray its story, I was pretty skeptical about it. I, didn't, I wasn't sure how that was going to look. I've seen these TV shows on, on television like 48 hours and stuff like that where they do the same thing and it's always kind of cheesy and so i assumed that that's what we were going to get but we actually got something a little more artsy than than i expected Mm -hmm. so what do you guys think and that that technique we see today uh, one of the uh, more popular sort of documentaries in the last few years men on the wire did that um 
I gotta say, I've seen some of Errol uh, Morris's films uh, previously, but this is I found a little bit more engaging than some of his other stuff. Some of his more recent stuff is more political in nature, uh, a bit more talking heads and kind of political, just a bit more dry, unless you're into that sort of thing. Uh, this one I found to be a fairly engaging story and kind of a connection to what Zach had said earlier about going down the rabbit hole of Wikipedia. I immediately wanted to know more details about this case mm-hmm. because at the time that this film was made, Randall Adams was still you know, behind bars. Shortly right. after the release of this film, he was exonerated. Um, and apparently there was some fighting between him and Aaron Morris. There was yeah. some litigation where he had signed over the rights to his, uh, his, his story, as it were, or his name. But anyhow, um, no, this was an interesting movie. I don't know exactly how you know Morris came upon this story or what led him to, to, to choose to make it into a film. That aside, though, uh, I, I found it really interesting. Initial impressions, Zach, uh, as far as documentary goes, had you seen anything like this before? Or? No, it, it held my interest the whole time, just like uh, the uh, A Man Escaped, I think that was the name of it. Uh, but it, it held my interest the whole time in that I was like, I can't believe this happened to this poor guy. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, and like you said afterwards, I had to know more. And mm-hmm. what a weird story that went into where he's like getting into legal trouble. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think... I think too when I was watching, I was like, okay, I'm again. I go in the mindset. I'm in '88. I'm watching this, and I'm going, wow, like the way it's edited and the realistic and stuff. That had to be kind of influential at the time. I don't think there was stuff yeah. prior to this that I had seen documentary wise that did stuff like it did. And I looked up, and sure enough, I had saw people were saying it was influential mm-hmm. at the time. So uh, yeah, I just I loved the way it was edited with the reenactments, and I. I took it as like, wow, it must have been cool at the time. And I enjoyed it for what it was and held my interest of what a, what a crazy story, a sad story from our kind of justice system. Yeah, I mean, I like documentaries that brings us into people's lives. Typically, I like it when they can use more source footage. Uh, what was the film? Uh, it was for a, a scrapped episode of the OC that we didn't get to do. Was it called Brothers Keeper? Yeah. The one about the three uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, brothers that were kind of, you know, lived out on a farmland by them. But anyhow, they were able to shoot a lot of, you know, real, they were able to go there. And, but obviously this is about a past incident. So I, yeah, that film didn't have, didn't have any archival. visuals of the incident in question. Right. It was kind of dealing with the aftermath. Um, in this film, obviously, they couldn't rely, you know, there was no, obviously if there was footage of the incident itself, it may have helped solve the case, but I think the the idea of doing the art, the doing the reenactments, it was a good workaround. It, it broke away from the kind of talking heads because we do get a lot of people talking with theories and opinions on the case. But you know, Randall Adams, kind of an interesting guy. He was living with his brother, Ramshackle Hotel, kind of a simple fella from Ohio, I guess. I think initially uh, was heading out west for work. Uh, then the guy uh, what was the name of the, the gentleman that he picked up uh, David Harris David, David Harris, Harris. Uh, bad news what a man. sly little fox very so and it, you kind of get this moment at the end which is this is where the film it goes to that higher level where like you're seeing something true something that's not just you know you're look when when Harris is being interviewed and he kind of just pauses and says you know maybe if he would have let me stay the night there at that time this wouldn't have happened to him like that's that's everything yeah that's 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 yeah. you know that's 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 mind blowing. That's a that's a real. That's such a him. That utterance uh, coming from him that says so, that that's that basically you know Randall Adams' time in jail all this time is for nothing. Like and he just grins and kind of you know yeah. and doesn't say more. Uh, and it's just like wow. Like 
you know, that's where fireworks are going off in your head because you're like, this is they've captured something that's that's true, that's you know, it, like you said, it's difficult. But yeah, one thing I found really interesting was that of all the reenactments that they do. There isn't one. You, you love the slow motion, uh, the chocolate milkshake, the malted that kept pouring out. <laughs> I definitely did love that. Uh, I'll get into that in a second, but there wasn't a reenactment in which David Harris is the person shooting the cop. The it, actually, it, it usually looks like Randall Adams mm, is in point. the driver's seat. You're right. Um, but the the reason I think that there isn't one is I think. Errol Morris wanted to be a little bit objective about about the whole thing. He didn't want to, you know, he's trying to implicate to David Harris, to, but yeah, without saying, "Hey, but yeah, this if he the wrong had, guy did it, yeah, yeah if yeah. he had made a reenactment with that guy doing it, uh, or a, at least a doppelganger of him, right, yeah. then you would automatically know that was his right agenda. Yeah, you wouldn't want to be biased because usually that'll turn you off in the documentary, right. And I don't know if there may have been legal ramifications too, uh, uh, right. potentially for like slander True. or something. But yeah, going back to the milkshake, I did love that scene because at first you're thinking, oh man, look at this stupid crap. They're, they're doing a shot of a milkshake flying out of a window. But then almost immediately after you find out that they show like a diagram of the <laughs> right. scene. And in that diagram, there is like chocolate liquid is listed on the as diagram. In, yeah, yeah. As evidence. And yeah, there's actually the the where the, the, the chocolate milkshake ended up does determine some factors as to exactly how the incident took place. And so yeah, it actually is a key a component to the evidence in question right. in the case. But yeah, <laughs> it made for a funny shot, uh, a repeated shot. And then you also have like the lady who was kind of presented as a gold digger, who mm-hmm. kind of nefarious, you know, basically Crazy. she's listed, you know, by others as a liar, uh, for better or worse, uh, take it uh, as it is. But she's presented as such, uh, meddling in different affairs. And I guess apparently she had been, you know, in trouble for that. So it's not necessarily um, a lie to, to point the finger at her. But anyhow, you know, so you do have some other quirky, interesting characters that kind of. And then also, too. The scene with Randall and, and him at the drive-in, and they recreated the movies that they were watching. Yeah. And there was like a, a, I forget what they called it, a, a cheerleader flick, I think, yeah. or something, <laughs> yeah, you know, a skin flick or something, you know. And they, you know, I, I felt uncomfortable, so I told them I wanted to go. And, you know, that they recreated that. That was kind of cheesy. Um, uh, yeah. I, You know, to me, I think I probably gave this a three is what I, I remember. And the reason being is that I felt the story itself was fascinating, um, and worthy of like, you know, I mean, I acknowledge that I didn't know, uh, that the filmmaking, you know, was like masterclass. Now we have made a case for it being kind of a pioneer in certain aspects. And I think it deserves respect in that, you know, regard and recognition. But, uh, for my money, it was kind of middle of the road. I gave it a three. I gave it a four out of five. If, the, if there was one thing that I had to be picky about on this one, it's that, you know, the title's The Thin Blue Line, so you have to you have to assume that it's primarily about the police, uh, but yet we're not given much uh, information about the, the guy who's actually killed in this. It's more Randall Adams' story than anything. Yeah. And I kind of wanted more background on this guy that was shot. Right. Yeah. I'd, I'd probably give it a three and a half. Alright guys, it's we've come we to the time that we've all been waiting for. <laughs> Dinosaur Island.
Dinosaur Island is a 1994 B-movie directed by Fred Olin Ray. It is often seen as a low-budget rip-off of Jurassic Park, although the plot is essentially a remake of 1952's Untamed Women. The movie is well known for its often panned special effects and large amount of nudity. Uh, a quick synopsis. Uh, an army captain is flying three misfit deserters home for a court-martial when the plane has engine trouble and they crash land in the ocean near an uncharted island. There they find a primitive society of cave women who routinely sacrifice virgins to appease quote-unquote the Great One, the top dog dinosaur on the island. Mistaken for gods, the men must destroy the Great One or face death, but meanwhile, they fall in love. <laughs> okay, guys. Uh, I'm going to kick it over to you, but first, a few things. One, uh, how I found this movie. Um, yeah. I don't know if you guys Late remember... Late surfing, huh? I don't, well, that's <laughs> actually not too far off. <laughs> I, I don't know if you guys remember a show, USA's Up All Night. Uh, it was hosted by uh, uh, Gilbert Godfrey, predominantly. Also, oh, yeah. there's Rhonda Shear, who had the squeaky voice, Up All Night. Anyway, it was in the 90s, predominantly, Saturday night's... Doubleheader, I think probably started around 9 or 10 o'clock, and then a second feature, you know, around 11. They were all B-movies, um, a variety of different genres, but predominantly B-movies, sci-fi movies, monster pictures, horror films, uh, sleazeball romances, you know, cheesy uh, 80s, 90s sex comedies. Anyhow, I found a list on Letterboxd where somebody had compiled, to their best knowledge, all the films that had ever aired on Up All Night. And as I'm, uh, so I, I read the final list to show me just ones that were available on Netflix Instant. And so it shortens the list down, and I'm flipping through, and I see the box art for Dinosaur Island. And I'm just like, I was explaining to Zach uh, before we got on the air, sometimes with my picks, I do like to throw a curveball, something completely out of left field. Because, you know, we can talk about critically, uh, you know, applaud it and laud it films until we're blue in the face. And, and predominantly we do, but I, like I said, I like to throw in a little twist. And so that was my pick here. Um, and another thing, uh, this film is often referred to, and, 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 and you know, forgive my language here, but it's often referred to online as Titty Island, <laughs> which is a you know an alternate title that I'm quite fond of. Um, but let's talk about it, guys. Uh, yeah, uh, this was my least favorite movie of the, of the movies we watched. I agree. I think this movie just ticked me off a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hey, if, we, if, if the movies can cause emotion within us, has caused anger in me, and that I think just these jokes felt like a fifty-year-old sleazy uncle wrote oh, yeah, all of yeah. them. It just was. It just made me just groan. Like, ugh. Like, are you kidding me? Like, some eye rolling. Point, yeah, a lot yeah. of eye rolling. And and for the most part, this was basically a porno. <laughs> like this. <laughs> I don't think you can get away from that. Uh, yeah, there were a couple of steamy scenes. Actually, less than I kind of expected, uh, given you know where it could have went. But yeah, there is a, a scene in a, a bubbling cauldron of a hot tub, uh, a primordial uh, a crater in the ground, where yeah, there's some events transpiring. I gotta say, so I went to watch it on Netflix, and it wasn't there for, for starters. Yeah. And so I was kind of like, well, what do we do? And I said, Zach, you know, we can't access this film. He, he at that point, he was the only person who had seen it. I said, is it okay if we choose an alternate, like, you know, something that we can all watch? But he said, well, you know, I already saw it. So I said, okay, you know, I don't want to force you to watch a second one. We'll, I'll find other methods to watch it. I, I believe, Sean, you saw it on YouTube. Uh, I watched it off that streaming site you sent me. Okay, so we, I found I a, a, yeah, a pirated site. And, and for some reason, my laptop is kind of outdated, so I had to watch it on my phone. But anyhow. Uh, it was a terrible um, version. Um, I, I, I did watch the film, and... 
I can totally see what Zach's saying. For me, my my expectations were so low that I was moderately surprised <laughs> that I found it somewhat affable and, and enjoyable. It's not something I would ever revisit or really wish upon anyone else, but I also didn't find it to be so brain numbing that I just wanted to, you know, I would say throw the remote at the TV, but at this point, power my phone off. I, I you know, yes, the jokes were, were quite bad, but um, there's something to be said about that particular era that they, that this film was made in. There's something that, um, I don't know exactly. I can't put my thumb on it. If they tried to recreate it now, it would be too like okay. It's too, yeah. we're in on the joke. Like you know, with the SNL and like there's all this funny or die like internet comedy is such a thing. Like everything's anybody comedy. can make that now, right? And so if it's if it was done now, it would be done so much like you know like for example, I'm kind of diverting a bit here, but like Scream is a spoof on the the horror franchise and kind of uprooted it. If this film was to be done today, it would be so much we're in on the joke. We know how dumb it is that it would you know. This film, though, like it was somewhat earnest in that they were trying to make. I mean, granted, they're, you know, but anyhow, um, the creature effects. There's not a lot of them. Most of it is just these dumb guys kind of trying to mack on the cave women. But um, there are some creature effects. I think there's a pterodactyl. There is the great one. Uh, mm. They were done on the cheap, but they're again, terrible. not as bad as you know I had feared. I went into this hoping it was like some hidden gem, like no. of, a, of a cult classic that everyone yeah. loved. Yeah, that's why I came into it as well. So. But instead, I got you know Cinemax late night yeah. softcore. And, 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 you know, there are in, in certain cult circles, some people do like this film uh, for its cheesiness, and and that's okay. I, I was looking at uh, Fred Olin Ray's filmography, and mm. I saw some of the titles. Uh, he's made like fifty films, by the way. But here's yeah. some of the titles. Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, Bad Girls from Mars, Girl with the Sex Ray Eyes, Tarzina, Jiggle in the Jungle, Personal and favorite. I counted 14 other films that have the word bikini in the title. <laughs> yeah, I got the box set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this movie just was for the lowest brow yeah. Yeah. type of... So I give it a one out of five. I can see from where you're coming from the certain the certain charm of how crappy it is, but at the same time, every joke and every just boob that popped on screen, I was just like again <laughs> yeah. and again. And again. You know, the nudity like, does. You know, uh, it's a bit overbearing. There's this one scene in particular, like so it, it starts like on an eleven with that, and it, it does kind of tamper off. Because yeah. the very first scene, which I saw a couple times, because there was a few moments where I would start this, like, am I actually going to watch this? And I would put yeah. it off and come back to you later. Mm-hmm. I so had to do that, too. The first scene yeah. I, I saw multiple times, and so it's maybe the one, but you have this most uh, buxom, <laughs> busty woman who's, you know, from her midriff up, she's painted in, like, a, a robin's egg blue, and she's running across the sandy beaches at night screaming, on the verge of a virgin sacrifice. And that scene is like, like I said, that's this movie turned up to 11. And at that point I was like, is this whole movie going to be this kind of in your face? And it's not, it turns into kind of a schlubby, you know, 90 sex comedy shortly thereafter. Uh, but yeah, so it does kind of start, if you're going to stick with it, you know, I'd say at least wait after the first five minutes and kind of, it will find its groove of lowbrow comedy. For me, I forget if I gave it a two or a 2.5. Like I said, you know, <laughs> For me, three is kind of good. You you kind of working backwards from there. The max of yeah, the three. Uh, but you know, and somebody this might be their favorite, and I won't hold that against them. I mean, growing up, I love some pretty lowbrow stuff like you know some trauma films, the Toxic Avenger. Again, not everybody's cup of 
mutated T, but... Real quick, I want to, you know, talk about misogyny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, there were moments in this film where I was actually kind of thinking, wow, uh, there are some strong female characters here, right? I mean, this is a all-women island. They've managed to survive, and they're doing really well with all these dinosaurs and everything, but... As soon as these guys get on this island, they're suddenly reduced to nothing. Right. There was a moment where I kind of thought, is this a feminist text? Because there were men before these. These are not the – this is not, you know, the first men to land on the island. We see the carcasses strewn across the beaches of others who have tried and failed uh, to to take down the Great One. But, yeah, once you get these guys who are lying through their teeth and their sleaze balls and, right, they dupe the women and essentially, you know, you end up – with them moving into this island and yeah i mean any of that you know you might is this subversive at all and maybe has a message you know no by the end of it <laughs> any hope that that is you know yeah it falls completely flat yeah i gave it a one out of five. Oh, what the, the the film that we watched uh last <laughs> last uh episode uh oh man <laughs> You can tell by the way you're laughing. I'm drawing a blank on the title. Uh, what was that that movie? You give it. Uh, did you give it a point five or did you give it a zero? Mississippi Shakedown. Mississippi Shakedown. Yeah, God forbid I forget the title of that cinematic uh, masterpiece. But this was better in, in your opinion. Then. Uh, <laughs> you got me there. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Your hands are tied. I. You know, it, it was. Uh, I think the production value on this was a little higher. <laughs> Let's jump into the 2000s, John. Alright. With 2002's Dirty Pretty Things. Now, I'm waking at the crack of dawn To send a little money home From here to the moon It's rising like a discotheque And now my bags are down and packed Dirty Pretty Things is directed by Stephen Frears and stars Chuatol Ejiofor and Audrey Totu. In a film primarily focusing on the struggle of two illegal immigrants trying to earn a living in England, Ejiofor plays Akwe, a Nigerian immigrant who drives a cab by day and works at the front desk of a hotel by night. Totu plays Shanai, a Turkish Muslim who works at the same hotel as a cleaner. When a prostitute named Juliet brings it to Akwe's attention that a toilet is clogged in her room, Akwe finds a heart, a human heart, while trying to fix the clog. Whose heart is it, and why is it in the toilet in this hotel? And will Akwe and Shania ever find peace in a world set on keeping them in the margins? How about since that? I film, feel that I, since I feel that I might be on the outside or in the minority in this case, I'll just say uh, the start, and then I'll let you guys kind of rebuttal. I found this an entirely problematic film, emotionally manipulative, and just I had some real issues with the movie. Um, it did not sit well with me, and I can kind of see maybe where Stephen Frears, what he was reaching for. And I've seen some of the guy's other films. I don't feel like I'm a fan of what, his particular wheelhouse. Let me, before I say anything else, I don't want to poison your thoughts. Um, Zach, Sean, no, I would, you want to fight I would, alongside the, Skulls? The road you're going down on, I would say the same thing. It didn't it didn't really grip me as much. I think that it had a nice uh, color palette to it. I think it had some nice uh, camera work to it. But um, I, I think that 
what it shed the light on, like the kind of struggle of illegal immigrants, I think was the biggest message of the film. And I think which that, is a pertinent one, and it could have been handled more deftly than this. Uh, so like I don't I don't have any problem. That's like maybe an important yeah. Let's put the spotlight on this particular yeah. crucial issue. Um, and it was so I obviously I have no problem with that socially, politically, emotionally. But it was you know the way that he handled the film, yeah. uh, choices that were made. At one point, after the third time, so I'm going to refer to her as Amelie because that's how we all know and love her. <laughs> yeah, Here is America's guy. independent sweetheart, and I, this very blunt uh, thought came into my head. Uh, an alternate motto for this movie: If you ever want to see Amelie mouth raped, not once, not twice, but three times, <laughs> this is the movie for you. <laughs> I mean, I was just like beating me over the head with this. You got <laughs> Amelie itself wasn't a exactly innocent film no no i mean yeah <laughs> but this film oh, and so uh, i'm gonna butcher the name too cheetah four the last edgy four edgy four he you know now i didn't even he wasn't on my radar when this movie was made I've, I've seen him in stuff since i think he's really a terrific actor like i think he's probably one of the best working men in, in hollywood today i've seen him do some remarkable work and i think even in this film while i'm watching it around him i'm like scripts lousy not you know I have issues with the the, the pacing you know, a bunch of problems, the villain, the the guy the hotel proprietor yeah I thought this is so we talked earlier back with Orlock about melodramatic acting this guy delivered he was a super villain and in a film that did not need him to play it up to ten a little bit of restraint yeah. would have been nice he literally you know he played he played such a smug villain that it was just like way over the top for the type of this should have been like a small indie kind of more authentic naturalistic film and then you have him as this villain but anyhow back to to cheetah 2 even in this film i was really i thought i love watching his work like he does a lot of things that are done without saying them emotions you know he's as the film you know progresses we kind of learn his background and kind of why he makes certain decisions but he is a man of kind of a moral principle like he has certain standards that he sticks to and he's a formidable presence on screen like he's very good in this it's just the rest of the movie around him is not in my opinion zach and i both seem to fall on that side of the fence sean uh i gave it four out of five uh i really enjoyed it um i liked that it had roots in reality um with with the immigration thing but then it also goes into this other reality that's really weird and that's this black market organ trade and that's i mean you might think that that's something that only happens in films, but like I looked it up, and it's there's it's a big problem around the globe. Yeah, but yeah, like like you said, Zach. Uh, so the important uh, takeaway uh, here is that is the immigration yeah, thing. Yeah, that that's what I enjoyed. Um, but let me let me let me pause for a sec, John. The 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 illicit uh, organ trading thing. Look, that is a legit thing, and there are people every single day that this is a you know uh, this is happening to. And I don't want to make light of that. The way that this film again handled that, you have this kind of underwritten prostitute character and you mentioned to like the stuff getting you know uh that was getting stuck in the toilet again like the way that they handled that i don't know i mean there's different adjectives you could use uh messy uh i the, the my catch-all was kind of problematic there was this issues i had throughout but even the way that they handled that i don't know and then the way it all wrapped up like oh we're gonna pull one over on him and actually take his organ like that seemed like you know, it seems <laughs> i love that I, I don't know i just love oh, that they got so revenge bad. there 
And, but like you're saying about the heart being in the toilet, I had a problem with the heart thing because, I mean, uh, really, did they do a heart transplant? Is that Yeah, I, I think, to me, I think the word <laughs> that kind of sums that up is wasted. Yeah. In the sense that that happened, and I actually started that and something happened, so I had to stop watching at that point, the film, and come back to it. Mm-hmm. And I was, I, I, I was telling my friends, I was like, whoa, there's this movie and they find a heart. Yeah, that it. starts like that was You're intriguing. Kind of intriguing. And they're like, "Well, we got to see this," and the movie kind of just never does anything else with that. But you got this obese, I feel like uh, the heart- Middle Eastern kind of uh, guy that works at the sweat shop, who you know forces himself on the omelet twice, and then you have the the proprietor of the hotel, and finally, after the third time, she's had enough, and she chomps off his member. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, Zach, you mentioned the colors. Uh, I liked all the artificial lighting and the neons, the greens, blues, and pinks throughout yeah. the movie. I, yeah, the I, I just fell in love with the two characters and their yeah. story. And how I liked how at the end, you know, they could have very easily just run off together, but it turned into uh, their, they, they went their separate ways. Right. They yeah. figured She's out moving on to, uh, to hopefully a better uh, future in the States, I believe. And then he's going back to his family, which he had been kind of, you know... It might be sappy, but yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I think it just, for me, it just didn't hit yeah. a constant, like like you said, it was kind of messy in parts. But I did like the what it kind of shed lights on. Because you were like, oh, that is probably what they have to deal with. And what you were saying with it's a very real thing, Vice did a thing talking about in the recent HBO show they do talking about how they go in these poor neighborhoods like hey do you want to make money and of course they say yeah and they just they exploit these poor villages and bring them over to like Indian and these other parts I forgot what the Mm. other countries were to take their uh was it kidneys I think it was it's frightening and it sucks and it's like oh this movie I think does show like they're stuck because if they do, then they're going to be outed and they're yeah. going to have to go back to these where they don't want to go. So uh, I, I think in that regard, I do appreciate the film. Yeah. Um, but it, it didn't hit, it hit, didn't hit a constant, like, I don't know. I'll be well, sure I don't to, know how to uh, put my thumb on it. Where, yeah, where it I'll be sure to send Stephen Frears a bouquet of flowers uh, on your behalf, Sean. <laughs> Let's uh, get to our final film. 2010 into present day. The best for last. <laughs> you better believe it. <laughs> Um, again, actually, uh, similar to my 1990s pick, this was another screwball. I'm a huge fan of Pixar. I, you know, like animated films in general, but there's a lot of, not even, like, B-level, but kind of, like, third, fourth party animated films that are entering the marketplace. Ones that we never really come across. Here's a movie that I never heard about that looks like it was made on a fairly high budget and does have some recognizable... Wow, $30 million. We're talking about Justin and the Knights of Valor. It's a 2013 English language Spanish 3D computer animated fantasy adventure comedy family film. What Whoa, a mouthful. What a genre. It's the best movie ever. It has every genre. <laughs> and within its genre, it certainly is held in high regard. It's animated by Candor Graphics, and it was produced by a few people, but namely Antonio Banderas. He got a big screen title right at the front. Yeah, I bet. In terms of its synopsis, Justin lives in a kingdom where bureaucrats rule and knights have been ousted. His dream is to become one of the Knights of Valor like his grandfather was, but his father, Reginald, the chief counsel to the queen, wants his son to follow in his footsteps and become a lawyer. After an inspiring visit to his beloved grandmother, 
and bidding farewell to his supposed lady love, Laura, Justin leaves home and embarks on a quest to become a knight. I'm, glad, I sell you, I'm you? glad you picked uh, these kind of two curveballs because I do like good movies and kind of highly regarded ones, but it's fun to just... Well, Tin, after I, after seeing Grandma the Cat to go to this. Is well, so I, after watching, you know, seeing Tin uh, All Quiet on the Western Front as much as I loved it, that would be a, you know kind of a so yeah we'll we'll mix it up a little yeah. Justin and the Knights of Valor. Guys, what did you think of this thing? Did you watch it in three D? <laughs> no, I don't have a three D television. No, <laughs> I, I didn't either. I wish I could say. But yeah, thirty million dollars to make this, mm. and it grossed three million at the box office. Ooh. Well, there will be no sequels of, of Justin yeah, and his further I, I'd adventures. I'd call that a flop. I didn't know that, that much was spent on it. Um, yeah. It wasn't worth that much. I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah. There so was a lot of talent in it. Sure. And I mean, and you, we, these international markets, yeah, something like animated films, you can dub the voices over in multiple languages. Like, they typically do well in foreign markets. This is uh, the inverse of that. <laughs> And you mentioned it wasn't a film that you'd heard of. I no. hadn't heard of it myself either, either. I don't even know how I... Uh, maybe I just saw the box at the library and kind of put it in the back of my head. And when searching for a 2010 title, I, I was like, I'd never see this movie uh, any other reason. Now I have an excuse. <laughs> and I'm going to subject others to it as well. There were um, some like sweeping like wide-angle landscape shots that I thought were really well animated. Like The animation in this was really well done. Quite early into the film, within the first few minutes, I was like, yeah, this actually looks, it looks the part. Like, it looks, you know, uh, it's not like, ah, yeah, that's a step behind DreamWorks or what. No, I, I thought it, it looked very, very good. I'll just say this about the film, because there's not a lot of meat to it, so I don't know that we can sink our teeth into any themes yeah, no. uh, or things of that nature. I want to say this, though. The last kind of act, the, all the action, like, it was the first part that the movie actually kind of clicked and worked for me. Everything leading up to it, he meets this wizard, blah, 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 all this back exposition. None of it left. It was literally like there and gone. I, I saw it, I absorbed it, it washed over me, and then I forgot it. But I gotta say, though, the set pieces for the end, the climactic sword fighting scene, which we've seen a thousand sword fighting scenes, it's hard to differentiate or make them unique. I actually liked it. Like, I was kind of on board when he was fighting the bad guy and he got his grandfather's sword and. Um, so yeah like I think the whole action at the end of the film was the best part for me and I've said this before in other areas in other podcasts and online typically like in your comic book movies the third act is my least interested part I like the character stuff the big crash boom bang up at the end you know is less interesting to me but here my favorite part actually was the climactic kind of fight scene uh, where everything kind of came together and fit yeah it might be cheesy and, and wrote or, or one note, but it, it was the only thing that gave me any kind of cinematic pleasure. This was a... You can pick up a Pixar film and you can sit next to your kids and you both enjoy it. Mm -hmm. This, I would get up and leave the kids to watch it. It's yeah. a kid's movie. I don't even know if they would still enjoy it. <laughs> Actually, it's, I started it with my daughter still being awake and she's kind of a, a cinephile herself. She watches movies with me and she was kind of interested a little bit at the beginning, but no... Uh, once she kind of got away from the TV she didn't return and so yeah yeah it just didn't uh, there were certain parts where I was thinking like yeah this is a kids thing with that one wizard guy that was doing all the crazy personality stuff I was like kids might laugh at this and think it's good but for an adult this was not and he sort of plays like this kind of linky dorky you know yeah. and so I could see how kids could you know oh he's kind of funny or I think that was my favorite part 
Yeah. With the his... crocodile dragon. Yeah, with yeah. the tutu or whatever. The <laughs> yeah, that was that was a good part. I, uh, I just think overall, this was this wouldn't be something I would sit down and watch if no. it wasn't for this. But it was a fun mix up, and uh, I think the message to kids is just like, hey, don't just do what your parents. <laughs> yeah, like, there's, some moral, there's some moral uh, yeah, somewhere yeah. there. I mean, to me, I talked about you know being a, a cinematic, cinematicist. Sometimes it's not putting yourself through an eight-hour, you know, uh, spoken word, you know, uh, German film. It's you know sometimes a, a ninety-minute, eighty-minute, you know, animated film. Like you to turn your kind of active mind off and just sit there and try to absorb it, and you know, is a difficult task. Yeah, this because, one was hard to get through. Yeah, yes, it was. I gave it a two out of five. Yeah, I think I gave it a two uh, as well. Two's fair. Yeah, two's fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Guys, as we come to an end today, um, it's been an interesting um, experience. We've looked at 10 completely different films. We just went back 100 years, guys. Wow. Yeah, we and we look none the older. Yeah. You guys look great. Uh, sometimes Sean and I do a segment uh, where we close out the show, kind of random selections we ask each other about. I want to do something a little bit different this time. Uh, as we end... And if you don't have something that's okay, you can pass or you can kind of divert. But anything, uh, list maybe one or two films that you've seen recently that you liked and maybe one that you're looking forward to. Uh, I watched the documentary from HBO recently called Going Clear. Mm, Scientology. Uh, it's, it's the documentary on Scientology, and that is a wild ride. I highly recommend oh, that. Interesting. It uh, covers, of course, uh, John Travolta is in there as, long as, as well as Tom Cruise. They go in. From the very beginning of Scientology all the way to current day of what's been going on with the religion. Some will call it a cult. Some will call it a religion. It's a wild ride. It's crazy. It's just, yeah, you have to see it. You have to see it because it is. Cool. It, you, you get to see, for one thing, how weird this will get. How this whole kind of yeah. uh, religion slash cult slash whatever is. And then you also get to see... Tom Cruise and John Travolta and kind of what their deal is with the uh, their involvement in Scientology and that just gets to <laughs> the way it's edited is just perfect in that you're like oh my gosh wow and just a mix of emotions like whoa he's wacko and whoa I see what he's doing there or yeah. like I love that you can kind of when a document like documentary like maker can kind of show you fully both sides of a right. thing and lets you definitely fully observe and make a judgment for yourself. So that was awesome. I don't know if we can talk about TV shows too. Is that Go a fun thing? Why not? I started watching again the Batman animated series wow. from the 90s. Yeah. Uh, still as good as ever. Still great. Yes. An amazing show. <laughs> Very, we saw about film noir. That's one that wears its influences like, very yeah. heavily. Yeah. Still holds um, up. Great. So, Sean, what about you? I recently watched Mommy and... I would highly recommend that. Film. I saw you gave it five stars, and you know it's one that played at our local art house cinema. And I was kind of curious about it. I saw some pretty divisive opinions online, so I was intrigued by your high score. It's it's amazing. Uh, it's it deals with mental disorders and like parents of children with mental disorders. It's uh, it's really raw. The acting is so emotional, uh, and there's like it's about a law that was set into place where a parent was able to put their child in um, an institution mm -hmm. if they had this disorder and so that's kind of where the movie goes well, it's great um no i know no, our library yeah. carries it and there's other means and you mentioned the the, the documentary is that available on like hbo go yeah probably to, yeah. to see uh, i'll throw out a couple um just watched it this past week uh creep i've been publicizing it online trying to promote others to see it 
It's like not even 80 minutes, two guys and one like $10 Halloween mask, and you'd be amazed at how unsettling this film is. Um, it's kind of a cross between that old uh, weepy My Life with uh, 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 Michael Keaton, uh, where he has cancer and he's making a video to his unborn son, mixed with like the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> um, it's got Mark Duplass in it, who's an actor that a lot of people might be familiar with for his TV work on The League, on FX, and then he's also in films like Safety Not Guaranteed. He's a filmmaker himself. He's done a lot of really cool movies like uh, The Puffy Chair. I don't want to say anything about the plot, um, but the, the title creep is entirely uh, effective and, and accurate. I'll say you really need to check it out. I think it was technically made in 2014. Uh, it just hit Netflix uh, Instant on July 14th, uh, so just a not too long before we recorded this podcast. Definitely do yourself a service and, and see that one. One, one uh, more I'll, I'll point out quickly. I haven't yet thought, we're only at the mid-year, about like my top 20 uh, movies for this year. I know there's some films that would probably land in there, experiences that I've enjoyed in the theater, Ex Machina, uh, It Follows. Mm-hmm. I like both those quite a bit. Uh, I mentioned Pixar before, Inside Out would probably land somewhere on my list. But right now, I think my going number one is Josh and Benny Safdie from New York, their film Heaven Knows What. It's about a heroin addict uh, in New York City. It's a young girl. Uh, it's based off her actual story. They didn't turn around and made, uh, adapted her story into a film, and they got her to play herself. And you talked about raw emotion. Like, this film is just, it's the definition, uh, the personification of rawness on the screen. And it's got this really interesting synth score to it. The music, uh, the whole film, it, it's just, I loved it. And, good. and it kind of a cool thing too is I kind of tweeted about it and through kind of the, the marvel of modern kind of social media is that by tweeting about the movie, the filmmakers themselves kind of reached out to me and we kind of tweet each other back and forth a couple times. And I made a connection to Inside Out, the Disney movie. When they went opening weekend and saw Inside Out, they wrote back to me making a, a reference from their movie to Inside Out, like a connection, and it just like blows my mind. Here's two movies I saw in one week that were completely different, Disney and this really grungy, low-budget indie, and suddenly the filmmaker of the indie is talking to me. It's it just very cool. Uh, it's not yet, I don't think, available on, on, on DVD. It might be VOD, but look for it later this year. Heaven knows what. Terrific movie. Things that we're excited about, i got to jump into why I'm running at the mouth. August is here, uh, Straight Outta Compton, the film about NWA. I really want to see that. Also, this is me showing my dorky side, uh, this October Goosebumps, the movie, uh, is coming out. Uh, I was a huge Goosebumps fan growing up. And in fact, you mentioned TV series. Over on my personal website, ReviewToWorld.com, me and my buddy Toby from Texas, we are currently... Uh, in a several month long escapade we're examining all 74 episodes of the Goosebumps TV series Uh, the first part is out where we look at the first four episodes if you're at all interested in horror or the R.L. Stein books take a look at that I forgot to say I saw Mad Max and Inside Out recently man I love both of those Inside Out like Anything to do with memories or growing from a child yeah. and growing up and having to did you, deal with Did life. you tear up at all, if I can ask? Definitely. I did Any stuff with memories destroys me. It absolutely just killed it. Wonderful I can't, film. No dry, no dry eyes when that happens. Um, loved that. Um, and Mad Max, I think, was awesome. I Good think deal of fun, yeah. It's not usually... I don't usually like that type of film where it's very quick. Or yeah. very. I like a slow burn, but no, Mad Max, I think, was so fast and visceral from the very beginning to the end. I think that movie was fun. How nobody so, died on the making of that movie. <laughs> yeah, is, the, the stunts uh, were incredible. It yeah. looks so much different. And some I read about the other day and saw, like, watched videos on, the way they filmed the night scenes, they filmed them in daytime. 
They filmed yeah. them in the daytime, the overexposed day. them, mm-hmm. and did some color correction stuff. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, George Miller, man. Uh, he's come a long way since Bay Pig in the City. Yeah, I didn't know he did that, but that's uh, it looked freaking great. It's a fun movie. Please go see that. It's yeah, awesome. Definitely one of the more fun experiences you'll have in the theater this summer. Yeah. Another upcoming, I don't know if you've heard of the series, Star Wars. You might have heard of it. Uh, they're making that. So, that's a movie, right? Star uh, Wars? Yeah. Oh, Star Wars? Yeah. No, uh, yeah. I, 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 you know, I was kind of trying to troll the internet and I didn't, nobody bit. So I wasted my time. When the trailer dropped, I released my top 50 movies, uh, trailers, you know, that I'm more anticipating than in, in Star Wars. Yeah. And nobody, nobody argued with and me. Nobody believed it. I was a sad troll. But uh, I'm still going to see it. Uh, uh, I'm looking forward to Yeah, it. I'm going to see it opening weekend, uh, irregardless. So. Yeah, it, after being burned by the prequels, personally, uh, and then seeing this, I came in very highly skeptical. But the way the trailers have been it able seems to like portray, it's in good hands man i'm in i'm i'll go see it definitely regardless day one so we'll yeah. go in and expect the good things yeah i think that about wraps this episode yeah uh who knows when we'll be back so yeah behind the scenes in front of screens we're at this absorbing cinema at a rapid rate uh zach we got to thank you big time for coming out sweltering awesome. heat uh joining us it's been a while uh it's been fun I yeah like yeah we'll talk to you later see you guys bye see ya.